When I was reading the lessons for this week, I realized after reading the reading from Proverbs uh, on the capable wife that there was no way I could get out of preaching on that text. <laughs> I, I could get, uh, can remember as a kid being in, at the dinner table in more than one house where the, the man of the house, it was, would be some occasion or maybe just random, uh, would read this text or portions of it at the dinner table. I could never figure it out, whether there was some sort of internal tension between the husband and the wife, whether he was currying favor or apologizing for something that he'd done, or whether he was just being pious. It was just hard to know. But I thought I would say some, some things about this uh, reading because it is, by the way, Stephen Wells did an excellent job reading the reading because it was very clear uh, what he was reading and what it was saying. But in some sense, it represents certainly in the ancient Near East in advance. And so we might want to talk a little bit about what that might mean. Last week I preached on Proverbs and I talked a little bit about the uh, wisdom tradition. There's a whole section of, of uh, literature in the, in the Hebrew Bible uh, called the wisdom literature. It includes Proverbs. It includes Job. It includes the wisdom of Solomon, the book of wisdom, Ecclesiastes. And I know that when I took the wisdom literature in seminary, it included the Psalms as well as part of that section in the Hebrew Bible. So the book of Proverbs is the oldest of the books in the wisdom tradition. And therefore, it represents to some extent uh, a more conservative point of view or a, perhaps a, a sort of uh, one note being uh, sounded throughout the book. And that is mainly that, uh, well, first they wanted to make sure that we all knew that wisdom was feminine. And so woman wisdom begins the book of Proverbs, and we end today with a poem about the capable wife. I'll say more about that in a minute. But the book of Proverbs has something to do with the whole issue of the circumstances in which we find ourselves are the result of our own making. Before that, they talk a little bit about wisdom in general terms. So in the ancient Near East, wisdom could be understood as technical skill, the art of government, simple cleverness, the practical skills of coping with life, and the pursuit of a lifestyle of proper ethical conduct. So these things are all part of the understanding, but the other piece to this is the circumstances in which we find ourselves are of our own making. And I would guess that most of us would believe that most of the time. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people who would, would love to create social policy on the basis of uh, the circumstances we're in or of our own making, right? Now, the big question, as I asked last week, that I'm going to keep asking because there's no uh, simple answer, but if, if 
all of the circumstances in which we find ourselves are of our own making. Are you willing to help anybody who's in a jam that's of their own making? Because most of the stuff we do is of our own making. But the book of Proverbs represents that point of view about wisdom in terms of the way the world works. But the book of Job, which is also in the wisdom tradition, talks about a man who is afflicted and it's not his fault. It isn't the result of anything he did. Those of us who are in the helping professions know that there are often circumstances in which people uh, get themselves into serious situations that are not of their own making. So there always needs to be this healthy tension, doesn't there, of how we understand what it means when we speak about the source of our own difficulties. Today, we're introduced to the end of the book of Proverbs, and it is a, a, a poem about the, the capable wife. But here's why being a student of the Bible is, a, is important, you know. This word, th th this uh, passage is often, most often called the capable wife. It can be translated as strong woman, woman of worth, or perfect wife. How come? Because the same word for woman is the same word for wife in Hebrew. Isha. So, sometimes, you know, translations are interpretations, aren't they? In fact, all translations are interpretations. So we have this poem. It is an acrostic. And that means that each line of the poem begins with a succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The perfect form for the perfect woman. It makes understanding it when you read it a little difficult to write that way because sometimes it doesn't just sort of kadunk, 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 kadunk. So it concludes the book of Proverbs. It's clearly written from a man's perspective, a strong, capable, worthy woman, and the capable wife is wholly defined from the male-identified point of view, from the perspective of her fulfillment of roles that enable the lives of men who depend on her. Uh, you know, somebody asked at the sermon discussion group, boy, this list of the things that the capable wife does is substantial. She's even in business for herself. She can earn income. She's doing this kind of thing. It looks like she might be able to own property, which was very unthinkable in those days. What was he doing? I'll tell you, he was at the gate, hanging around. Like my grandfather used to say, when he says, you know what? I'm going to go have to speak to the boys in the back room. 
That's what was going on in all probability. And yet, as I said earlier, this is a corrective. I'm going to read something to you now from Carol Fontaine, who is the professor of Hebrew scriptures at Andover Newton Theological School in Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, she wrote the commentary on Proverbs in the Harper's uh, Biblical Commentary. The picture presented in this poem acts as a corrective to the notion that women are dangerous beings who sap away men's lives and fortunes and may have been included precisely to counter such one-sided negative views seen earlier with a positive last word on the subject. In other words, if you were to read Proverbs all the way through, uh, there, there are other places in Proverbs where women are, don't come off as well as in this last poem about the perfect wife. So the way I understand this proverb or this, this poem has more to do with the fact that uh, I have always believed that God works through the manners, morals, and customs of people and within the thought world of the wisdom literature and uh, the book of Proverbs, this represents an advance with regard to the way in which women's uh, essential character is understood in the community. Uh, since then, people would like to claim that there's been a sea change in the way in which men and women relate to one another, and I believe that to be true. But old patterns of thinking and relating uh, continue to be present. On my vacation, you're probably going to say, what is the matter with him? I read a book uh, called Sydney Anglicanism and its threat to the worldwide Anglican communion. What in the world? It's a great book. I'm very interested in this. What does it mean uh, the diocese, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney in Australia is very large and extremely well healed financially. It is an extremely conservative evangelical diocese. In fact, the bishop and the dean of the cathedral and, the, and all of the priests that are trained in that diocese believe that it is their vocation to complete the work that was begun during the English Reformation in the 16th century and to carry it to its full conclusion. And its full conclusion, in their view, is that we now become Presbyterians. <laughs> the Archbishop of Sydney, Peter Jensen, and his brother Philip, uh, who is the Dean of the Cathedral, are engaged in this process, and also because of their financial uh, well-heeledness, they're uh, making a play for prominence in the worldwide Anglican communion and all of the kerfuffles that have faced the Anglican Church over the last several years. But I'm raising this issue because uh, they have very strong feelings about something called male headship. And in Christian evangelical circles in this country, we have a lot of people who are extremely concerned about male headship. 
and its importance and centrality. And essentially that means women are one down and they muster all the biblical support that they can for this. No women may be ordained priests or bishops in the Diocese of Sydney. And yet the Diocese of Sydney has been a great advocate, perhaps the only advocate, in the worldwide Anglican Communion for something called lay presidency at the Eucharist. Which permits unordained people, lay people, to preside at the Eucharist under certain circumstances. So the great anomaly is women may not function at the liturgy in the Diocese of Sydney in any significant way, but if there's some uh, parish without without an ordained person, a woman could conceivably be asked to be the lay president at a Sunday Eucharist when they are celebrated. In many places in Sydney, maybe they celebrate the Eucharist once every quarter, whether you need it or not. Uh, Episcopalians need to stand against this and to say that uh, male headship has produced no ends in the the present public discourse over the last uh, several months or a year. We have this coming up now in one form or another. Someone at the sermon discussion group uh, who came from that background said this was something like the man is riding the bicycle and I get to sit behind him. He steers it. He rides it. He, uses, he goes where, we, where he's going to go. And occasionally I may be permitted to whisper in his ear that I think the direction may not be the right one. Do you want to go back to that? You and I are called to bring the full force and effect of our intellectual powers on the deep things of Christian faith and belief. And male headship is not the way to go, trust me. In the reading from the epistle of James, we have James once again talking about practical wisdom. And what he's reacting against is, I think, one of the ancient understandings of uh, wisdom that I read to you, which is simple cleverness. And some biblical scholars think that this letter was written to a Christian community or came out of a Christian community that um, was uh, the the majority of the people in it were um, fairly prosperous uh, Christians. Remember, Christianity began as an urban movement. So a number of the congregations that Paul founded, for example, were congregations that had a number of people with some degree of education and perhaps held some status in the community, although the important thing about that is that it had an enormous people to those who were on the margins. And James is speaking to the constituency within that community who have the ability and the obligation to understand uh, right relationship and to see that their own, uh, the way in which they understand who they are and what they ought to do 
always needs to be tinctured with the idea that we need to reach out in love and concern for others. In other words, it's a form of saying that we need to move from what we call kinship altruism. Father Schlegel would probably talk about that as an anthropologist and say our first obligation and instinct is to look after our families and our own kinship group. And that what Christian people learned was is that they needed to move to, to take that same love and c concern for that kinship group and now practice that with everybody. So in other words, as I said earlier, in your kinship group, you're probably willing in your family to help somebody who's in a, a jam because of their own making. Right? You may even become sick or crazy from doing it. And yet at the same time, maybe we need to understand that we bring that kind of love and concern to everybody, that we're all in this together in some way. And so James is saying, you, know, you need to be less self-centered and you need to be less acquisitive about how you live your life. And you need to listen to the natural, gener uh, generous impulses that are in every human being. And envy and jealousy and self-centeredness are pernicious influences uh, for every one of us. I've said this a number of times before. Uh, Ralph calls one of our parishioners one time uh, told a story about when he started out working in city government that when he was a young man, uh, the bo his boss called him into the office and he said, shut the door. Right by his desk was a piece of, it was an easel with newsprint on it. And so the guy drew a big circle. And he said, Ralph, this is the universe. And then he took the, the felt tip pen and put it right in the middle of the circle. And he said, this is the center of the universe. And then he put a little X on the outside of one of the, of the circle and said, this is you. Uh, James is speaking about the pernicious consequences of not realizing that. And he proposes some alternative behaviors. And by the way, this short list is not dissimilar to, to the fruits of the Spirit. One of the places where I say, if you want to ask yourself the question, have I made any spiritual progress of any kind, even uh, once in a while, you might say uh, that you have pure intentions, peaceableness, gentleness, willingness to yield, being merciful, like love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Those we call the fruits of the Spirit. And we also talk about the theological virtues, don't we, that we receive at our baptism, faith, hope, and love. If you're able to do those things a little better than you did yesterday, perhaps you're making some spiritual progress. And that's what James is talking about. 
I try to get up every morning and tell myself again two things. That today, uh, everybody that I talk to, I believe means what they say. That I do not have to go through an elaborate psychoanalysis of somebody else's motives to figure out what they mean. I understand they mean what they say. And the second thing that I believe is that all of us are people of goodwill. Unfortunately, I am often bitterly disappointed, and I bet you are too, right? But I'm not going to give up on that. That we mean what we say. That means that each of us has the obligation to be as clear as possible when we speak to other people. Not fix it so that somebody has to figure that out. I'm sure that all of you have been in some kind of relationship or family life where you were supposed to figure out what the other person was thinking or feeling. That's the kind of stuff that makes you sick or crazy. So you have to operate from the basis that they mean what they say. You know? And also that you at the same time believe that they are people of goodwill. That all people are people of goodwill. This week, give thanks to God for the uh, strong women in your life and the women that have had a deep influence on you and have made you a better person and without whom you wouldn't be the person that you are. And also see if you can work on the whole idea of pure intentions, peaceableness, gentleness, willingness to yield, and being merciful. James says at the end of the epistle today, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Amen.